0: Hey everybody, just a quick announcement before we start this week. After a chat with some friends, I've decided I'm going to start releasing these bi-weekly instead of every week. I'm under too much stress to try and get these out to you every week, and I want to provide a good quality episode for you instead of just rushing to get one out. So there'll be no episode next week, but the following week there will be. Hi, my name is Thomas, and this is Let's Talk About. A bi-weekly podcast where I talk about things. Things I like, things going on in the world, and things I want to learn more about. Last week, I did the first part and two-parter about Jack the Ripper, where I talked about his five victims, known as the Canonical Five. This week, I'm going to talk about the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, and the From Hell letter, as well as some possible suspects. So without further ado, let's jump into it. During the Autumn of Terror, the Whitechapel police received a large amount of letters, some of which were from concerned citizens, others trying to help, and hundreds of others from pranksters trying to get in on the scare. But There were a few letters that really stood out for the police. The first letter is the Dear Boss letter. Originally thought to be a hoax, the letter was received by the Central News Agency on September 27, 1888, just before Catherine Eddowes was murdered. It gained notoriety due to the fact that the author of the note mentions removing an earlobe, and Eddowes' body was found missing an earlobe. The letter was full of misspellings and grammatical error. The letter reads, QUOTE Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, But they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on the whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with. But it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha, ha. The next job I do shall clip the lady's ear off and send to the police officers, just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away, if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all of the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. End quote. What's really interesting about this letter is the fact that this was the first time that the term Jack the Ripper had been used as a moniker, and it was signed by the murderer. It is also interesting to note the postscript at the end, with the line, They say I'm a doctor now, which could suggest that the killer wasn't in fact a doctor, but either a veterinarian, or nowhere within the medical profession at all. As well, the poor grammar indicates that the killer wasn't educated, or rather, played it off that way. On October 1st, the Central News Agency received a postcard from an anonymous person. It contained the same handwriting as the Dear Boss letter, and refers to the double event or the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, which both occurred the day before. This letter reads, quote, I was not caught in dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow, double event this time, number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off, had not got time to get ears off for police, thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again, Jack the Ripper." Quote. Years later, a journalist by the name of Fred Best would come forward saying that he had written both the Saucy Jack and Dear Boss letter, but both the Dear Boss and Saucy Jack letters would vanish. The Dear Boss letter was returned in 1988, The Saucy Jack Postcard has never been recovered. The last letter received is the From Hell letter, which is arguably the most disturbing of the three. It arrived in a small box containing half of a human kidney, which could have been the one removed from Catherine Edos. What's also unique about this letter is the fact that the handwriting is different. It was unsigned, and the grammar and spelling were even worse than the previous two, providing more evidence that the first two were actually written by Fred Best and not the killer. The From Hell letter reads, quote, From Hell. Mr. Lusk, sore. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed. Catch you when you can, Mr. Lusk. End quote. The kidney was examined by a doctor, and it was determined that it came from a woman of about 45 years of age who suffered from Bright's disease, kidney failure, due to excessive drinking. Catherine Eddowes was 46 when she was murdered, and was known to be an alcoholic. Just as with the two letters before, this letter disappeared and was never recovered. I will include links as to where you can find pictures of all of these letters. So, let's talk about the suspects. You'd go through a list of every single name of every man who lived in Whitechapel during the Autumn of Terror. Pick out any name. They were a suspect. The list of suspects grew every single day without it ever really being narrowed down. Melville McNaughton was the chief constable at the time of the murders, and his memorandum wrote about three suspects he believes were the most likely. The first suspect is Montague John Druitt. He was a favorite suspect of Melville. Montague worked part-time as a barrister. Quote, a doctor of about 41 years of age and a fairly good family, who disappeared at the time of the Millers' court murder and whose body was found floating in the Thames on the 31st of December, i.e. seven weeks after said murder. The body was said to have been the wonder for a month or more. From private information, I have little doubt but that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It was alleged that he was sexually insane. End quote. In November of 1888, Drewitt was let go from his duties at the school, and a month later, he was found floating in the Thames, and it was clear that he had been there for quite some time. So why was he a suspect? Well, the timing of the deaths lined up with the end of the murders. While not officially part of the canonical five, Mary Kelly was murdered on November 9th, 1988. It is entirely possible that after her murder, he was let go and, in a fit of rage or sorrow, killed himself. McNaughton also ascertained that Druitt's family believed he was a Ripper. On closer inspection, though, this case does begin to fall apart. For starters, Druitt was 10 years younger than McNaughton claimed, being 31 and not 41 at the time of his death. He came from a family of doctors, but he himself was not one. McNaughton also states that, quote, The murderer's brain gave way altogether after his awful glut in Miller's court in that he immediately committed suicide. But Druid was actively working as a barrister days after the murder, and he continued to work as a teacher for three weeks after the death of Mary Kelly. Druid's family also only believed that he was a ripper, but didn't have any actual evidence. The last piece of evidence that suggests Drew is not the murderer is the fact that he had never actually visited Whitechapel, or rather, there were no known records of him visiting Whitechapel. There is evidence on both sides of the case. Could Drew be the killer, or was he just a man with a tragic story that was brought to light at the same time as the murders? The second suspect in this case was Aaron Kosminski, quote, a Polish Jew. A resident in Whitechapel, this man became insane owing to many years' indulgence in solitary vices. He had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class, and had strong homicidal tendencies. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889. An interesting part of the Kosminski case is that the two most senior officers of the case also believed he was a ripper. But who was he? Aaron Kosminski was a Polish-born tailor, but not much more is known about him apart from the fact that his later medical records suggest he was a hairdresser. By May of 1890, Krasminski was showing signs of clear mental stress and was admitted to a workhouse, where he stayed for only three days before being released. He was readmitted approximately six months later, and was certified insane, and transferred to Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum. He was 26 at the time. His occupation was listed as hairdresser, and later on, it was added that he was admitted due to self-abuse. His record also states that he was not a danger to others, which goes against the case that he may have been the Ripper. Because of the fact that little is known about his life, there isn't a lot of evidence against his case, despite the fact that he was never classified as homicidal when he was in the workhouse and asylum. The last suspect is Michael Ostrog, who McNaughton described as, quote, a Russian doctor and a convict who was subsequently detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac, this man's antecedents were of the worst possible type, and his whereabouts at the time of the murders could never be ascertained. As opposed to the other suspects who have evidence against them, Ostrog has surprisingly little evidence in this case. For starters, he wasn't known to be a violent man. Ostrog was a thief and con man who was in and out of prison for most of his adult life. But in his long-standing career as a criminal, the only time he was ever violent was in 1873 when he was arrested and he pulled a gun on the arresting officer. Ostrog was arrested in 1887 after he stole a tankard from the Royal Military Academy. He was taken to court. During his trials, he began to show signs of insanity and despite the fact that many people believed he was faking it, he was declared insane and was sent to Surrey Pauper Lunatic Asylum, where he was employed as a surgeon. He was released in 1888 and was required to report in regularly to the police. When the murders were happening, the police began looking for somebody with mental health issues and medical experience. As such, they began looking into all recent asylum releases, which is when Ostrog's name would have come up. Ostrog was once again arrested in 1891 and was sent to Banstead Lunatic Asylum, where he was reportedly suicidal but not dangerous to anybody else. One last thing that may have proven his innocence was the fact that Ostrog wasn't in London during the murders. He had been serving a two year sentence in France until November of 1890 now for something interesting, DNA evidence. Forensic scientists believe they have finally figured out the identity of Jack the Ripper. They believe that it is Aaron Kosminski, McNaughton's second suspect, but there are some issues around this claim. The DNA comes from a shawl that was found next to Catherine Addo's body. The shawl contains two stains, one believed to be blood and the other believed to be semen. I don't want to discuss the entire paper that was published, but I will give you the ending. Essentially, it's not conclusive that it's Kosminski. Originally, there was a mistake in the nomenclature. There was a mutation in the DNA that had been labeled as 314.1c, a mutation existing in only 1 in 290,000 people. But it was mislabeled and was actually 315.1c, a mutation that is shared in 99% of all European descendants. So exclusive evidence could just be about any person. We may never know the true identity of Jack the Ripper, but that's okay. Some things are just lost to history. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcast and Google Play. You can always email me at letstalkaboutpod at outlook.com or follow me on Instagram at talkaboutpod. My name is Thomas, and this has been Let's Talk About.